You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. Hope you had a nice holiday, Thanksgiving time. It was a very busy week for us. This is the very first year we've hosted Thanksgiving at our house. For uh, we, It was a smaller group. It was just my parents and uh, my wife and I and our kids. Uh, but then whenever you have a first time to do anything, there's a low underlying level of stress in wanting to make sure it goes well. And everything kind of really fell into place except the turkey. <clears throat> uh, about an hour and a half after it should have been done, it was still not getting up to the right temperature, and you don't want to eat undercooked bird, um, so had to turn up the heat a little bit. Eventually, we got it to work out, but it was just one of those, like, not the turkey. If we're going to have something go wrong, it can be the rolls. Um, but, um, and then after that, uh, the next day, we, had, um, we were participating with the Festival of Lights, and we operated the information booth. So a big thank you to all of you that came out and were involved in helping out with that. Really appreciate it. Uh, if you're here and I haven't gotten to you yet, the, um, your mug is up front for helping out. Thank you for that. Um, we are continuing in the flood narrative today, which is the first chapter 6 through 9 of Genesis. Um, we're going to be going through all of Genesis, and it's this um, bigger idea of the foundations that God has given to us. Uh, the foundations for Scripture uh, is the whole book of Genesis, but within that there is a foundation, and that's actually the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Every major theme in the Bible can be traced back to these 11 chapters. So there's a lot in there, a lot to unpack. There's a lot of major underpinning themes in this particular chapter, so I'm going to try to get through it all. There's going to be a lot of words today, um, but it's going to be fun. There's going to be a lot of good things, uh, a lot of interesting things, because so far we've talked about biblical stewardship um, back in chapter 6, talking about how do we handle the things that don't belong to you, which is everything. Everything belongs to God, including all of the people in the world. How are we treating people that belong to God? How are we treating God's children? Are we treating them with the same reverence and respect that you would the king's son, the ruling authority's son or daughter? Would you treat, are you treating other people with that same respect, being that they are God's people? How do we... Um, we've talked in chapter 7 about salvation, God's solution to the problem. The problem being we have sinful man, and a price must be paid. But God wants them to live. What is God's solution to this problem? Salvation. God provides salvation for all mankind. In chapter 8, we talked about peace, the condition in which God wants us to live with Him and with each other, a state of peace and a reconciliation and not being in conflict with each other or with God. And so today we're going to talk about repeated cycles. Um, this is the reason why humans need a Savior in the first place, because we lack the ability to learn from those who have come before us. Because if we were really good at that, we wouldn't be having any problems. Civilization would be so far along, people would be so good and wonderful and kind to each other, there would be no conflicts in the world. Because all you have to do is look back, and you don't even have to look back far to see, wow, that turned out really bad when they did that. We shouldn't do that anymore. 
And that would be the logical way to look at past events. But unfortunately, people don't do that. They go, wow, that turned out really bad. But it won't turn out that way for me. <laughs> or, well, I'm going to do it anyways. Because it seems fun. It seems good. I'm going to do it anyways because I can. And we have these repeated cycles because then it goes bad. And then people regret doing it. And they go, wow, that turned out really bad. No kidding. <laughs> and so my favorite scripture alluding and emphasizing this point is from Proverbs 26, 11. It says, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. It's a visceral picture because anyone who's owned a dog and seen this happen, it's like, why? Why? No, no, stop. It's disgusting. I feel that's by the scripture, the way God looks at us oftentimes. What? No, why? Why are you doing that again? It hurt the first time. That's why that happens. And he looked at him and go, oh, I feel better now. It wasn't that bad. And just, stop. Like a fool that returns to his folly, a dog that returns to its vomit. It should give us a visceral picture. We would go, I don't want to be that dog. I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be painting this picture. I don't want to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And we're going to see that in this chapter and hopefully see God's way of us avoiding this if we were to but listen and to learn from what he wants us to see here. Out of Genesis 9, verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This should be very reminiscent of Genesis 1, the original blessing he gave to mankind. New life, refreshed, clean slate. Let's do this the right way. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you should not eat flesh with its life. That is the blood. So we have two different things going on here. We have initially this new blessing, which comes with fear and dread of everything that moves on the earth. It's interesting, whenever I read this passage, it reminds me of a story that my friend Ron Mullinson told me. Him and his wife, Claire, attended our church for a while, but they've moved across the country to be closer to family. Um, he, Ron and a friend of his used to go up to Kodiak, Alaska fairly regularly. Kodiak, Alaska is fairly famous for Kodiak bears. Big old grizzlies. Grizzly bears get to be about seven feet tall when they're standing up on their hind legs. That's about here. If they're on their backs, if they're just on all fours, they're about here. And they weigh about 600 pounds. 600 pound creature just has to lay on you and it's one. <laughs> Let alone the raw strength and power that it has. And if you've ever seen a bear up close, the jaws on those things are incredible and the claws on those things are incredible. It's a big, terrifying creature. And so they were a little concerned, but they wanted to go up. They wanted to see the beautiful country. So they brought sidearms with them to just, you shoot them off, scare the bear. Well, as they went up, they found that these wild creatures, truly wild creatures, they're not used to people at all. The moment they came in contact with them, the bears fled. 
every single time. And these are the biggest game in town. They're literally three times the size of these men. And they just fled. They're terrified of them because the fear and dread of man is upon every creature. When we interact too closely with animals is when they start to behave in a strange way or a little bit too familiar way. And we get the Yosemite bears that'll literally walk up and open your bag and go, what do you got? (laughs) That's not the normal interactions of people and animals. Truly wild animals are terrified of you. Doesn't matter your shape or size. They don't want to mess with you because the fear of God, the, the fear of you that God has put in them is upon them. And he has given them to us to subdue and now to eat. They might have been eating them beforehand. We don't specifically know, but now he's instituted some specific prohibitions on this. Mainly, don't eat the blood. This is an interesting thing to mention here. And there's always a good reason for what God says, particularly with things of food. Generally, there's a health concern. They didn't know it then. We actually understand it a lot better now. And there's usually a spiritual concern tied as well. The health concern here, don't eat raw blood. That's not good for you. It's not good for your body. Don't eat raw blood and meat. Don't eat raw pork. Anybody ever just want to eat a nice, juicy hunk of raw pork? No, you wouldn't want to do that because it's got trichinosis in it. You're going to have a really bad ride for about a week. You want to eat a raw piece of chicken? No, it's got salmonella in it. Yeah, no. Mm-mm. There's a good health reason not to do this because before, at this time, they didn't have thermometers. They had no idea if they got it to the right temperature that cooks these things out of them. And so, for concerns of their health, don't eat it with the blood in it. Drain it all out, cook it till it's burnt, and then you can eat it. Is the condition that he gave them. That's the health reason that we know now, but there's a spiritual reason tied to this as well. And this is more elaborated as we go into Leviticus chapter 17. It says, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you, given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. It's not the animal itself that's giving a payment for you, for your sins when they were making sacrifices. It's not the sacrifice of the beast and the cost that it is. It's the blood of the animal in which its life is, is an issue of he has declared that to be special, to be holy for atonement. Why is it that way? Because God declared it to be that way. And we are called to not profane this. To profane something is to make it common, make it everyday use. So if it's just an everyday part of your meal, your goings on, it no longer has that unique quality that God wants you to give to it, that fear and reverence of it. This is the payment for your very souls. This is what I have put in place so that you can be in right standing with me. And this is what God calls out to us. And this is the setup actually for later on in scripture for some of the things that Jesus does and the reasons for this. 
Because it's kind of strange when we talked about we are cleansed by the blood of God. That's a weird saying. I mean, nobody really feels clean if they've got blood all over them. So why is this the case? This is the setup for what God is doing, his reasons for his actions later on in Scripture. Out of John 6, 35 through 56, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Later on in this same chapter, it says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now that sounds fairly gruesome. That's cannibalism right there. That's bad. Don't do that. That's not what Jesus is trying to convey here. But he doesn't always fully explain things right away. And some of his disciples asked him and said, uh, this is a bit of a hard message because we know we're not supposed to eat people and we know we've been told since the times of Noah we're not supposed to drink blood. So what are you talking about here, Lord? And actually quite a few of his disciples fell away because of this teaching. But it's allegorical. It's the point that man cannot live off of bread alone, but every word of God. That we are not going to find true sustenance simply through the things of this world, through the temporal, through simply satisfying our basic physical needs. Your spirit has needs that need to be satisfied that can only be satisfied through God. The word of God is the bread of life so that one will never hunger. How does one never thirst? How does one never have that desire of their soul fully satisfied? Well, that's through the blood of Christ. He's that fount that will give you everlasting waters, the waters of life come from the Lord. The life that regenerates your soul. Because there's only two conditions in life. There's either alive in Christ or dead in your sins. And it's quite literal, but not the physical death, because clearly no one here is dead. All the people out there that are unsaved aren't dead physically. They're dead spiritually. It's a spiritual death. That's why when Jesus talked to Nicodemus and he said, you need to be born again, not of flesh, not of water, as the birth of your mother, but of spirit. Your spirit needs to be made alive again. And this only comes through the waters of life, the blood of Christ, his redemption for your soul. That's what's being talked about here. This is that why communion is so very important. This is a unique moment to remember what God did. And it's allegorical. When he says, take the bread, you're not actually eating the flesh of God. It's symbolic of the bread of life that comes from God. When he says, drink the cup, you're not actually drinking the blood of Christ. It's symbolic of the life-giving waters that only come through God. It's a spiritual reminder to not forget, to not profane, to not make common what God did for all of mankind. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There's two things going on here. First is lex talionis, the law 
of reconciliation, not reconciliation, retaliation. It's further emphasized in Exodus 21 where it says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Let the punishment fit the crime is what's being emphasized here. Let the punishment fit the crime. And there will be a punishment for the crime. We're not just letting things slide. There will be consequences to actions, and they will be appropriate consequences depending on what has occurred. And it's also the realization that mankind needs some firmer boundaries. Left to our own devices, God had to wipe out the whole world. Some firmer boundaries had to be put in place here. There will be consequences. You know, the point of a consequence isn't to have the consequence ever meted out. Nobody puts forth a consequence hoping to be able to institute it. We put forth consequences to get people to not do those things. No parent tells their child, if you do that, you're getting a spanking thinking, oh, let them do it. I really just want to. Nobody wants to do that. God doesn't want to punish all of mankind. He has zero desire for that. The hope is the consequence is severe enough that you won't do it. And yet, we have these repeated cycles. We have people continuing to return to the vomit. There's going to be consequences for this. A price has to be paid. There needs to be a reckoning. Specifically, when God is talking here about blood for blood, this is something that's already being set up for something that is already in place. The fact that all mankind's life is already forfeit from the day you're born. The day you're born, the life is forfeit. Why? Sin. But it's from the day you're born. What sin have you committed? All mankind. All mankind has a nature that you cannot escape from, a knowledge that you were never meant to have. It's a pointing back to original sin that's already in place, the fact that you have the knowledge of good and evil that mankind is not meant to possess. But we do. You can't get rid of that on your own. You can't scrub yourself clean of that. You can't just go, okay, no more. You're stuck with it. And because of it, to dust you shall return. That's a problem. God desires mankind to live, to have life everlasting, to have fullness of life. It's a problem that he is just and there must be a consequence to this. So what is going to take place? A price has to be paid. Out of Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All means all. There are no exceptions to this. I know there's a lot of folks around the world, maybe even here, that have this belief that God would never send a good person to hell. And I assure you, he would not send a good person to hell because good means godly. So I need to rephrase this because I think our attitude towards it is a little bit skewed. There are a lot of nice people in the world that are not godly. They don't follow after God, but they're nice people. They're lovely people. They pay their taxes, they're friendly, they're good to their kids, but they deny God. 
to do that is to deny the waters of life. That means their spirit isn't regenerated. They're dead inside. Their niceness doesn't give them life. Only God gives them life. They need God to live. It might hurt inside to think about that person not being in eternity. And it should hurt inside thinking that person's not going to be in eternity. But they're not alive. Their spirit isn't alive. Their spirit is what's going to continue. This body, if Jesus tarries, will waste away to nothing. It's the spirit that's going to continue on and the renewed body that God's going to give you. That spirit needs life, and that life only comes through Jesus. It doesn't matter how nice they are on this earth. And God has told us, I want you to go and tell them. I want you to go and tell them about this free gift I have for them, this ability for them to live. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has made the way. And you might have asked yourself at some point, how is that even possible? How is it possible that God could make the way? He could excuse every sin for all mankind by one person dying. Because what we see with the examples of animals, that it's not enough. It's never sufficient. There will always have to be more. Because if you are in the, through the law, when an atonement is made for your soul, it's for that moment, what you've done before, now you are clean. If you go and sin the next moment, it has to be done again. And it will have to be done again. And it will have to be done again. It is never enough. Now, if a person, because they are not a beast, if a person who was able to live a pure and sinless life were to die on someone else's behalf, it's for one person, person for person. So how does one person do this for all mankind? Because it has to be a person, because it's a person's crime. Well, God came as a person, and God is the source of all life. So his life has the value of everything from all time because life is inherent in God. So when he expends his life, it is given to all of mankind through all time. Out of Romans 3, it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. All the sinners that have come before Christ was on this earth and sacrificed his life. Every single one of them, God passed over their former sins should they have simply put their faith in God. When we look through the Old Testament, we look through those counted as righteousness, it's never righteousness by their deeds. It's righteousness by their faith. It's righteousness that they believed in God. And that is how atonement is made for you. Through the work Christ did, would you simply believe that He is Savior. We continue in our passage, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, 
and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all generations, I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all the flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is in the earth. And God said to this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. I got it the first time. <laughs> Immense repetition over and over again. It's so tedious to go through. You just want to skip it. But it's there for that very purpose to stand out like a sore thumb to you, to feel like, Lord, why did you say it so many times? we have to recall to mind that no word of God is wasted in Scripture. Nothing is frivolous in here. Everything is here to prove a point, to emphasize a point. When we see that repetition, usually it's twice to really let it sit in. If you said it twice, you should pay attention. If you said it three times, there's something of the fullness of God here and that there's something holy about this. If you said it seven times, it has to do with completeness. This is going to have to do with all of Scripture here. He says covenant seven times here. There's a major emphasis to this, a covenant for all the earth. We should pause at these moments and ask the question, what did this mean here? What does this mean actually throughout Scripture? What does this mean to me now, the idea of God's covenant? Because God's covenant is going to display to us how God is going to interact with us throughout all time, not just through Scripture, but through all of life forevermore, is defined by his covenant with mankind. Well, right here, it's talking about, hey, Noah, I want man to live, and I'm not going to destroy the earth with water again. I'm going to do it with fire next time. <laughs> but not with water. We're not going to do it that way. We're going to give you some time. Be fruitful, multiply, and know that I am faithful that God's promises are kept, that He is faithful despite us. How does this have to do throughout the rest of Scripture? When do we see covenant come up again when God adds to His promises? Out of Genesis 12, we see, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Leave everything you've ever known on faith. and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse in you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And God fulfilled this promise. He fulfilled this promise in Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham, the one that has given his life for all the earth to be redeemed. And he adds to his covenant even later on, out of Exodus 24, it says, then he, being Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And if you've read the rest of the book, that should be very ironic. 
And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenants that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You've been consecrated. You've made, been made clean. There's newness of life once more. We can do this. And we get to these points in our life where we think, we can do this. Yes, God, I believe in you. You've redeemed me. You've forgiven my sins. You brought me out of the miry pit. You've put me in this place. I'm going to follow you, Lord. And it's good for a little bit. And then you look back at the vomit. It wasn't that bad. It's a little bit. And that's the problem, because a little bit comes a lot of bit. And then we go through the same consequence all over again. And we repeat the cycle. And that's what Malachi is going to say to us as he's reflecting upon everything that has come before. In his day, they're almost going to be taken out to, to exile, to Babylon. It says, have we not one father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Why does this keep happening over and over and over again? And as we reflect upon this, and as they reflected upon this, realizing man is not going to be able to do this. We're never going to be able to make it. We're never going to be able to keep faithful. We keep repeating the same things over and over again. How will we ever be made righteous before the Lord? And that's the whole point of the law, to say to you, you're not. You can't do this. It's not ever about what you've done. It's about what you believed. It's about the faith you put in your creator, not the faith you put in yourself or the faith you've put in another. It's always pointing back to Jesus. It's always pointing back to God. Do you have faith in Him? Because God's the one who's going to make the way. Continuous, throughout Scripture, the Lord has said, you need a Savior. Out of Luke 22, and when the hour came, He reclined at table and the apostles with Him, and He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this is the cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant is a covenant of faith, not a covenant of works. It's a reminder of what God has always wanted us to do from the very beginning, to simply have faith in Him and walk with Him. At the very beginning, He did not give them an entire book of rules. He said, don't eat from that tree. Learn from me. It was simple, and it's simple now. Believe in the Lord. There are two rules. Love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything boils down to that. It's as simple as that and as complicated as that. That will define your whole life and every moment of it. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Why even mention that? These three were the sons of Noah, 
and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. That's kind of important information. But why mention specifically that Ham is the father of Canaan? Those sort of things should pique our interest. Go, Lord, that's, uh, that's odd. You didn't mention any of the other kids. Why this particular one? Canaan and the land of Canaan is going to become pivotal, the focal point of basically the rest of Scripture. It's a foreshadowing. It's saying, uh, yeah, this is going to be important. It's going to be really important later. Noah began to be a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. Two things here. First thing, drunkenness never turns out well. Ever. There's never a good time when someone has been drunk out of their mind and they had a really positive story to result from that. It's usually regrets. And it's usually funny, but not good. <laughs> Proverbs 23 says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Excess is never good for you. Excess in anything is never good for you. We are called to self-control, to moderation. Out of Proverbs 25, it says, If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. There are things in the Bible that are inherently wrong, and it's really specific about that. But there's a lot of things in the Bible that are not inherently wrong unless you overdo it, unless you do too much of it, unless you take it beyond its intended amount. And that can be for anything. That can be for alcohol. That can be for food. That can be for any sort of narcotics. That can be anything. There are proper uses of those things that it's fine in moderation. But in overdoing it, any of it turns out badly. We always need to remember that God has called us to self-control. If you can't exercise self-control in those areas, then you abstain. Now, we don't put that on everyone else around us, but hopefully those around you respect you and honor you and don't cause you to stumble either. Those are the two things we need to hold in tension. One, if you have trouble with it, you don't put that on everyone else in the world. Wine, alcohol, alcohol is not bad. There's been a lot of things within the church over history where the whole church says, no, we don't do any alcohol. Alcohol is not inherently bad. Jesus has wine at the Last Supper. He turns water into wine at the wedding. Alcohol itself isn't bad. Too much alcohol is. Food itself is not bad. Too much food is. Nothing in excess. Moderation. Self-control. 
reasonably encouraging others along and not causing them to stumble or the things we've been called to. Not laying burdens upon them they were not meant to carry. That's the first thing. The second thing is what's going on with Ham's interaction with his father and his brothers having to do with his father's nakedness and him telling his brothers and them covering him up. And this is going to result in a really big curse and it's a really big deal. And I remember reading this and going, why? Because it's not really that big a deal now. It's a little embarrassing. But now it just doesn't have the same weight to it that it would have then. It's the equivalent of getting blackout drunk and taking off all your clothes and falling asleep naked in your living room. Embarrassing. No one really wants to be caught in that state, but it's not like it's going to divide your family over this hopefully. But things are different here. There's things we need to consider that was going on that we need to understand about their culture and about sin and about original sin, actually. When we read through Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Revelation 3, and Isaiah 47, it talks about the issues with uncovering the nakedness, particularly of family, but really of anybody, and how shameful that would be how much you have shamed them by doing this, and to the point of some of these instances, how sinful it would become, this action. When we read out of Genesis 3 and in Genesis 2, it talks about Adam and Eve, when they were created, they were naked and they were not ashamed, which is so ironic that that's not the case now, because our natural state of being, when you are born, none of you is born in clothing. You're born naked. That's your natural state of being. And yet, we cover ourselves. Because when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was, their eyes were open to the fact that they were naked and it caused them to feel shame. They were ashamed of who they were and how God made them. And they covered themselves. And it's this original sin that this points back to, the fact that we feel shame. We teach people to feel ashamed of who they are. When we read through the passages of Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 27, and Exodus 21, it's talking about people's interactions with their families, particularly their parents, and how reverence was meant to be had for your parents, and this very particular relationship. One of those passages actually says, if a man strikes his father or mother, not strikes them down, just strikes them, he is to be put to death. Slap your dad, you're dead. Not like the joking, I'm going to kill you, literal. It's a death penalty for that. The reverence for parents was held in such a different state than it is now. And if we're going to look at a passage, we have to define it by then, not now. So at this point, what Ham has done, instead of honoring his father, and he saw, when he saw him naked, he didn't go, oh, no, and run and get a blanket and cover him real quick, and hey, what are you doing? Shh, mind your business. And go and cover his father to protect him, what he chose to do was to exploit his father, to go outside and mock him to his brothers and tell of his nakedness and publicly shame his father, reminding of the original sin and the fall of mankind. It's a big deal what's happened here. Proverbs eleven twenty nine 29 says, whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. Let's stop there for a moment, because if you look into this, there's actually some different viewpoints on what was done to him. 
Some people are reading a little bit more into this by the passage, by the context. They want to think it's a little bit more risque, that perhaps some things were exempted from the passage but are implied here. I don't lean on that side of things, specifically because the Bible is not silent about the risque things. We're going to read later on about Lot and his daughters. Um, we might at some point read about Absalom and his sister and Absalom and his stepmothers. And there's a lot of things that are very explicit and the Bible doesn't mince words about it. So when we read this and it doesn't say that, I'm not going to read into it. It's bad enough as it is. He said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. This curse is foreshadowing what's to come. We see later on in Genesis 17, it says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you. And he's talking to the descendant of Shem, Abraham and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, the other half of this curse which talks about the enlarging of Japheth. Japheth's people groups, they kind of went into Europa, that whole part, that whole continent there, and they don't really ever dwell in the tents of Shem. And so the fulfillment of this part of this prophetic curse actually has to do with Christ and the Gentiles being added into the family of God once more. And only through that future fulfillment do we see this. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The chapter had such potential at the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. There's new life, blessings. It'll be good. There's a couple more rules because you did really bad the last time, but it's going to be great. Newness of life. That was the first thing that happens. Excess. A lack of moderation. And the exploitation of someone else's state. And mocking and shame. And then eventually because of this consequences. It's the repeated cycle. It's returning to it over and over again. It's in no time at all. And we are encouraged not to return, to not repeat the cycle, to step out of it, to allow God to break this for you. Out of Galatians 5, 18 through 25, it says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, those that do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let's embrace the freedom God desires for us.
Amen.